0: And welcome to History is Gay, a podcast that examines the underappreciated and overlooked queer ladies, gents, and gentle envies that have always been there in the unexplored corners of history. Because history has never been as straight as you think. (laughs) Thanks. I'm Lee. And I'm Gretchen. And we're recording in person together today. <gasps> we're in the same space. It's super cool. I don't know if y'all knew this, but we record over Skype far, far away from each other. <laughs> and... Literally two time
1: zones <laughs> away from each other.
0: Yeah. So now we're sitting in the same room. Um, so we apologize for any weird soundy things because we don't know what we're doing. But this this is a new experience.
1: I'm I'm excited. I don't know if you're I'm excited, excited about this, but I'm excited. We might laugh a little bit more in person. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we, we realize that recording together in the same room might be a little bit of a disaster. Um, we also have a friend here who is sitting in the corner drinking wine and trying not to laugh. Um,
1: that may or may not be super successful. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, what are we talking about? Today we're going to be talking about Bulldaggers and Lady Lovers. So, the lesbian and bisexual blues legends of the Harlem Renaissance. Yes! Oh, I, man. Oh, boy. These
0: ladies. I I first started looking into these when we were starting to look for, um... Music for the podcast, and I discovered Lucille Bogan, and I was like, "What is happening right now? <laughs> this is the gayest shit I've ever encountered. It's so much fun. Oh my god! So this, this is going to be great. This is going to be a lot of fun. So we're we're diving back into the format that we first had from our first episode, where we're going to be talking about a specific group of
1: people, and we're going to tell you how gay they are. Which oh is man, really cool. So before we dive in, we do have couple of announcements about content warnings. The first thing that we need to mention is that we will be using some language that is often considered slurs. The words faggot and dyke will be used. They were not going to be using them as slurs. They were just terminology that was used at the time. This was terms that people would use to refer to themselves in the queer community. So those terms will come up though and we just want you all to be aware that those terms will come up.
0: Yeah. There will also uh, be some mention of domestic violence. A lot of these women dealt with it in their lives, and it actually became a huge element of the content of their music. So Mm -hmm. that will be a theme sort of throughout, but we're going to be pretty abbreviated about it. Um, Not very explicit, because we have some more fun and awesome gay things to get into with their lives.
1: Yep. So... Other than that, I don't think we have any other new announcements, do we? No, no, unless you,
0: you know, unless you are a person who is going to TGI Fem Slash, uh, which is a really, really awesome uh, Fem Slash queer lady convention sort of thing that we're going down to later in the week that we're recording this, which uh,
1: we will be coming back when we release it, but...
0: Yeah, we, any of you who are listeners who are going to that, we will be excited to see you.
1: Yeah, and we've got, we've got some merch that we're going to take with us to TJFM Slash. So that maybe hopefully will be something that we will be offering to our general listeners soon. But right now we're just limited because we're new at this thing. So <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah. If we have anything left over, we'll be sure to let anybody, everybody know about it. But with that, let's get into our... Our main topic. Let's talk about the lesbian and bisexual blues legends in the Harlem Renaissance. Yeah, Lee, you want to start us off? Yeah, yeah. Um, so for those of you uh, who don't know anything about the Harlem Renaissance. This is a period of time between nineteen to nineteen twenty and nineteen thirty in in the neighborhood of Harlem, New York. So, for many Black Americans in the U.S. at this time, the desire for respectability meant adapting to and adopting to values of white Christian Edwardianism. Mm-hmm. Not so in the blues community and in Harlem. So. The time between the, twi- the the beginning of the 1920s and 1930 in Harlem, New York was filled with an explosion of art, music, poetry, and entertainment among the primarily black neighborhood, known as the Harlem Renaissance. What a lot of people don't know, however, is that the Harlem Renaissance also gave way to a prominent black gay subculture outside of the dominant white mainstream culture full of speakeasies and private parties, booze and schmooze, and an open secret quality prevalent in the jazz and blues music everywhere at the time.
1: Yeah, and this came out of this, there was a mass migration of black people from the post-slavery south to cities in the north and west, which was known as the Great Migration. Uh, They moved to places like Chicago, Detroit, Buffalo, had significant black communities, same with Milwaukee. But New York City, the Harlem neighborhood, had the biggest influx of black residents and became the epicenter for black art and culture. It was an introduction of what's called the New Negro Movement, and Harlem really was the capital of that movement. And there were many prominent participants in the Harlem Harlem Renaissance who were reportedly gay, lesbian, or bisexual, um, according to one of our sources. Uh, uh, the book called *Gay Rebel of the Harlem Renaissance*.
0: Yeah, some of the the people that we know of as some of the most prominent luminaries in the Harlem Renaissance, folks like poet Langston Hughes, Zora Neale Hurston, were queer, or if not, or if not queer, queer adjacent, and ran in the same circles as a lot of these people. So it
1: was completely and totally enmeshed in this culture. Right. You have someone like Frankie Halfpint Jackson who sang a lot of songs as a female impersonator and would even sing songs about male lovers as a female mm-hmm. impersonator. So you have, yeah, that kind of, not, they're either queer themselves or queer adjacent. They're queer somehow either in their presentation or in their, the way that they performed or in their, you know, actual relationships with people of the same gender. hmm
0: yeah. Um, also in this period, you get the advent of, female blues singers, which are the the people we're going to be primarily talking about today. And what was really significant about these women was that they were specifically defying post-Victorian cultural expectations. These women were flouting and doing away with the model of womanhood that was mainstream culture, right? They were not subservient to men nope. in any fashion. <laughs> uh, they dressed flashy and flamboyantly. They would be dressed head to tail, Head to tail in tuxedo. In tuxedos or gaudy gowns with a lot of jewelry. And it was this really amazing explosion of culture from these women that came from working class black backgrounds and they were trailblazers a lot of the flapper movement actually took cues from these communities
1: right I was really intrigued by that because I don't remember learning that specifically in school that like the flapper movement in the fashion and the way that women behaved in that movement took its cues directly from the Harlem Renaissance and these and these female blues singers so I thought that was awesome mm-hmm. you also have them diverging from the upright ambitious lifestyle promoted by the black leadership at the time like W.E.B. Dubois Bois who was working towards assimilation and establishing black colleges. So you have this movement within the black community towards wanting to establish a kind of respectability within the dominant white culture and really counter to that were these blues singers who were basically doing the opposite of all of that. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Also, at
0: this time, you have to understand, too, like, especially in the South, a lot of these women started their careers before they got into Chicago or New York and really going into these touring circuits. They started out in in a lot of abject poverty in the Mm -hmm. South and came from sharecropping families. And so at this time, some of our sources would talk about how the two main avenues for black women or black folk in general was to work either as sharecroppers or go into domestic labor or to go into entertainment. Entertainment and going to the stage was generally thought of as the only way out of crushing poverty.
1: Right. Right. Now, as we mentioned at the beginning, there's some language that you need to be aware of at this time. The This is actually the origin of the term bulldagger, which was the term for butch lesbians, mm-hmm. uh, which could be shortened to BD women, uh, BD being short for bulldagger. And at a Harlem party, a vice investigator attended and asked one of the women if she were... "Quote normal," <laughs> she responded. "Everybody's here is either a bull dagger or a faggot, and I am here. So, like we said, the use of bull dagger, faggot. But what's interesting is bull dagger or bull dyke, which is another version of the same mm-hmm. same term, were actually reserved for people of color. At the time, people who were queer who were white would have been referred to as lesbians and homosexuals. Mm-hmm. So dyke and faggot at the time were specifically used for non-white people in this context."
0: Yeah, you also see a lot of references to being, quote, in the life, which I thought it was really cool, and I want to use that now. Yeah. Um, Yeah, and if if you don't know the origin of, I mean, we talk about how, like, dyke was specifically used among POC at the time, but the specific term dyke or bull dyker has been seen as one of its first uses in a novelist from this time period, Chris McKay. He has a whole bunch of novels, and in one of them he refers to somebody as a bull diker. And there's suggestions that it might be related to the slang use of dike, D-I-K-E, a.k.a. a ditch, used as a slang term for vulva, and bull being used as like a masculine or aggressive sense. So I think it's really interesting. But There's, there's constantly a conversation of like, oh no, we can't use this word because it's a slur, but everything was either a slur or became something that we attributed to ourselves right after it being used derogatorily against us so it's an ever-evolving
1: yeah because at the time when when women referred to themselves as a as a bull dagger or a bull dyke it wasn't derogatory then that was just the term they used to describe themselves Mm -hmm. at the time so speaking of speaking of bull dykes oh boy oh man oh boy these ladies are so amazing yeah
0: uh, um, uh, I'm excited about this. And it's funny, too, because there's a really great documentary. It's, like, a 30-minute documentary, and it's actually available online right now. We're going to put a link to it, but it's called Taint Nobody's Business. Um, can it's, I, can it's I just say how
1: much I enjoy that there's a pun in that title? Oh, Taint. Taint, taint, taint Nobody's Business. <laughs> I know it's not oh, supposed God. to be, but I'm a child. So when I read, when I read that, I was like, he's
0: <laughs> got the one taint. Um, but there's this, there's this really... Fantastic documentary that is actually available for free online on Vimeo right now, at least for the month of February for Black Black History Month. That goes into all of these queer divas, which is really cool, and they separate them out in kind of two sections by like quote bisexuals and the bulldaggers. And you'll kind of see as we go through these the different approaches these women went to went into their relationships with women in different ways. Uh, But the first person we're gonna start off with. Is Gertrude Ma Rainey, who I love. Um, so, Gertrude Ma Rainey was born in 1886 and she died in 1939. She's one of the big three, the quote, big three classic blues women artists, including her, Bessie Smith, and Lucille Bogan. She is called the mother of the blues, and she was one of the earliest Black American recording artists. She made over 92 records in her five-year recording career. She was performing for so much longer, but she had a five-year recording career, and she made almost 100 records, which was insane. Right. Right. And Sandra Lieb, who wrote one of the most comprehensive biographies on her life, mentions that in her most striking records, Ma Rainey deals with prostitution, homosexuality, lesbianism, and sadomasochism. And you'll see this as a large theme around a lot of these women who were part of kind of the, quote, dirty blues circuit and we don't have a lot of time to get into all the intricacies of like the blues and what it meant for black feminism and all of that which is so fascinating and I really really hope that you go out and you read these books you should be able to find them in your library I found that I found a couple ones at my library and it was really hard to, to not just dump all of that in her outline because I was just like, no, I want to talk about this. It's so cool. Angela Davis has a really cool book on it too. But so she was born Gertrude Pridget on April 26th, 1886 in Columbus, Georgia. She was the second of five children and her parents were both minstrel troupe singers. There's actually a lot about her life that has been relegated to legend and a lot of historians have had just kind of a difficult time narrowing down what's fact and what's fiction in regards to tales of her life. Oh, my God. Um, yeah, there's a lot of people who are like, oh, yeah, I knew Ma Rainey, and this happened, and blah, blah, blah. And other people are like, what are you talking about? There's actually, there was actually speculation that there were two Ma Rainey's. What? Yeah, yeah, because there was like, oh, no, Ma Rainey never went to New York. And then there was this other one, which, read the book. We don't have time to get into it, but it's it was so great. But so she's described as, quote, short, heavy, dark-skinned woman with luminous eyes, wild, wiry hair, and a large mouth filled with gold teeth. Uh, She was generally outgoing, sweet-tempered, warm, clean-spoken, and temperate, which is a contrast to her fiery-tempered protégé, Bessie Smith, who we will talk about. Oh man, Bessie Smith. She started performing in 1900 at the age of 14 in tent shows and traveling minstrel acts, and if you don't know about the tradition of minstrelsy, it was an art form in the early 1900s, 19-teens, that started out with white folk using blackface and doing grossly racist uh, comedy acts and singing, and it sort of eventually started moving more towards actually having black performers. But it still was a lot of exaggerated comedy and music, and it was what the blues evolved out of this kind of vaudevillian style. Mm -hmm. There are actually tales that Ma Rainey... (laughs) says that she coined the term the blues but i learned that this is actually a myth however she's one of the first people to publicly perform in this style she's the earliest link between before her it was just kind of like solitary dudes wandering the streets in the south and like singing random songs and she was the first person to like perform these she cemented it as like the classic blues um and all of the classic blues women singers followed in her footsteps even if they weren't directly taught or influenced by her so
1: so if she's the mother of the blues does that mean the blues are gay
0: yes well i mean (laughs) you're gonna find this out that the blues were really gay the blues are gay i mean male female anyone the blues were gay she even recorded with louis armstrong too bessie smith did as well too yep so she married William quote Pa Rainey in nineteen oh four at the age of eighteen and they became a song and dance team and they traveled together billed as Rainey and Rainey, assassinators of the blues. <laughs> Oh Which is gosh. so cool. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. She, one of her most famous shows was the Rabbit Foot Minstrel's Troupe. Um, and they had, like, comedy and circus acts. And they did this whole cool thing with her, like, coming out of, like, a Victrola. It would, like, open up. It was really neat. But they, like, traveled throughout the South. And she was one of the most renowned performers to travel with them. She continued performing through the 19-teens, and then she joined with the Moses Stokes Traveling Show, where she met and began to work with a new uh, young up-and-comer out of Tennessee, Bessie Smith, who we will get into very soon. Speaking of legends about her life, there are actually rumors and stories that she kidnapped Bessie. What? Yeah, that she, like, kidnapped Bessie and took her along with the show and taught her the blues, and it's, like, all legend. But it makes for a really good story. Bessie's sister-in-law, Maud Smith, actually, like, de- she denies the story. And she says that they would get together and laugh about the kidnapping rumors. Oh my gosh. Um, there's, like, a whole great story in one of the books that you can read. But they're, like, they talk, they get together over lunch. They talk about how funny it was. And she said that Ma was really more like a mother to Bessie. And that even though Bessie would later kind of deny it, that they were shown to be really close friends and colleagues. But Bessie likes to... Save face. Um, <laughs> up until this point, right, she had been mostly been like moving around the South, traveling a lot, and being, becoming kind of like a like a Southern minstrel star. And then in 1923, she picked up a contract with Paramount Record Company and became a national recording artist. She went to Chicago, so most of these other women you'll find did a lot of their recording in New York, in Harlem. Um, but she did mo- she did most of her work out of Chicago. And she recorded her first songs, which is where she was given the moniker the Mother of the Blues at 37 years old. She's not the first person to ever record the blues. That happened about three years earlier with Mamie Smith. She was the first black woman to record on the Oka label. But, like, blues mania had started to sweep the nation with that. And then the next year, she joins up with a pianist named Thomas Dorsey and starts the Wildcats Jazz Band. And she continues touring with them through the 20s until the end of the decade when, as you'll see with Bessie Smith, too, like, the rise of radio and changing audience tastes and response to vaudeville and minstrelsy, all of these kind of things um, started to lead to the decline of vaudeville and the blues and kind of move into a swing era. And, like, the thing that finally did the like the last nail in the coffin was the great depression in the in 1929 but her recording contract was terminated in 1928 and a former paramount executive explained to her that quote her down home material had gone out of fashion Mm. Um, so to kind of close out ma's bio here she retired in 1935 after the death of her sister melissa and returned to Columbus, Georgia to live in the home that she built for her family. She was like taking care of her family to the very end. Later that year, her mother died as well. She ended up purchasing and managing two different theaters in Rome, Georgia. And she turned to religion later in life. She died in December 1939 at the age of 53 from a heart disease, and her—this pisses me off so much—her death certificate lists her usual occupation as housekeeping. Like, the mother of the blues, the person who created an entire musical genre and paved the way for music as we know it today, had on her headstone— that her occupation was housekeeping. Gee. Because.
1: Gee. Wonder why. Racism. Right? Oh, Yeah. Probably some sexism in there, too. Yeah, racism, sexism, all the great stuff. But that's a brief bio of Ma. Get more into her. Right, so Bessie Smith came up a couple of times when you were talking about Ma Rainey, and she was born in 1894 and lived to 1937. She is a, like we said, a protege of Ma Rainey, called the Empress of the Blues. Mm Oh. So, step it up in
0: life. Well, because she was like, you know, Ma was like the first, but Bessie Smith was like gold standard. Right. She, she knocked it out of the park. She was like the highest, the highest paid recording artist of her time. Yep.
1: And she was also like the queen bee in this circle (laughs) of like bisexual and lesbian African-American blues singers she had over 160 recordings. I mean, she really is empress. All mm-hmm. hail. Um, yes. Born in Chattanooga, Tennessee, the daughter of a Baptist preacher and one of seven children. She started street performing at the age of nine mm-hmm. and auditioned for a Moses Stokes traveling show at age 18 in 1912. And that's where she met Ma Rainey, who took Smith under her wing to introduce her to the world of professional singing. She married her first husband, Earl Love, in 1920, who died a year later. And then she married Jack Gee in 1922. And their relationship lasted six years and they adopted a son together. And many themes in Smith's music deal with the physical violence between the two of them and abusive men in general. Smith's excessive drinking, temper, and affairs with women drove Jack crazy and he would beat and threaten to kill her frequently. Many times on her tours, Jack would make a surprise appearance and break up wild parties. And her chorus girls and boys were terrified of him.
0: Yeah, I thought it was really interesting, like, Angela Davis, in her book, specifically noted that the performances of classic blues women, especially Bessie Smith, were one of, quote, the few cultural spaces in which a tradition of public discourse on male
1: violence had been established.
0: Mm.
1: So. One of the few places where they could talk about their life story mm -hmm. honestly and openly was in their music. Yeah. Yeah. Her first recording, or first major recording, Downhearted Blues, actually sold 780,000 copies in less than six months. I mean, when when we said gold standard, this is gold standard, Mm -hmm. which this was astonishing for a woman of color in 1924. Each of the other songs that she recorded at the time sold over 20,000 copies, and people would stand in line for hours. Just to get a chance to listen to her sing. However, Frank Walker, whose studio she recorded with, was an asshole, mm-hmm. and he struck out the royalties clause in her contract, so she only ever received a fraction of the money that she could have earned in her lifetime. Yeah. Yay, racism and sexism. Yeah. Oh man, that's another just running theme in the lives of these women. Mm-hmm. Is you look at their lives and you see the ways that they were just shut down or Mm -hmm. underappreciated or not given you know what they deserved you look at the amount of money that they were making in a week and it's ridiculous to think that that was like someone of this talent and caliber was making so little yeah
0: well and they only they only made like a certain amount of money per usable side of the record too which is really interesting so it's it's crazy
1: yeah, much of Bessie Smith's music centers around traveling themes, and she and her company traveled in a train car that she purchased so as to avoid segregation issues with hotels, which is smart. And they would cook for her company, she would cook for her company on the train and had a wild life on the road, hanging out in bars and buffet flats, which we will get to buffet flats later. Yeah. they <laughs> very exciting. Bessie actually also had a wild temper and would hurl violent threats and sometimes carry them out. So, fun fact. <laughs> do you in, want to talk
0: about this or do you want me to talk about this? You can talk I, about this. Okay, I can so, talk about this. Okay, but, yes. but we, have
1: to, we have to preface this by, if if you all remember our first episode where we talked about how we wanted to ship Lizzie Borden with Anne Bonnie we, oh, yeah. we may have to make this a, a poly. This threesome. is definitely
0: becoming a poly
1: threesome. I want Bessie Smith. Bessie Smith needs in on and this. And this is
0: definitely, like, a case of anachronism, right? Like, Lizzie and Anne. Anne not too far apart removed, let's just launch them into the 1920s because I want them to hang out and just wreak havoc with Bessie. Cause... These three women would fuck shit up. <laughs> fuck shit up. Speaking of fuck shit up. um, <laughs> uh, So in 1927, basically, Bessie is, like, getting ready to perform, right? She's performing in this tent show. And fucking KKK members, stupid-ass Klansmen, come up. And they came to, like, interrupt her show by trying to remove the stakes in her tent and collapse the tent on her and her performing band. Seems like and... a bad idea. Bad idea. So, for anybody, but, like... They didn't know into. what they were getting into. She leaves the tent and, quote, ran toward the intruders, placed one hand on her hip, and shook a clenched fist at the Klansman. What the fuck you think you're doing, she shouted above the sound of the band. I'll get the whole damn tent out here if I have to. You just pick up them sheets and run. So <laughs> the Klansman apparently just stood there dumbfounded and gawked And she just kept hurling obscenities at them until they finally disappeared into the night. And then she just went back to performing like nothing had happened. (laughs) (laughs) Like the KKK walk up on you and just like, get the fuck out of here. What the fuck are you you doing? So, um, iconic. Oh, man. She's my hero. Right. Uh, She is. God. Oh, unfortunately. Bring bring back Bessie Smith for 2018 Nazis, please. Right, assholes
1: unfortunately as with ma Rainey, times got harder in the 30s and the blues started going out of fashion but she started touring the south again with her own show she died in september 1937 in a car crash with her boyfriend at the time whose name was richard morgan while they were in mississippi jack gee asshole Mm -hmm. sorry i just have to keep saying that because he is became rich on her royalties and that motherfucker didn't even buy her headstone she lay in an unmarked grave for 33 years while relatives squabbled over money and argued over who should pay. She actually didn't get her own headstone until 1970 when Janice Joplin, a huge fan of Bessie's and Juanita Green, who used to clean her house and became president of the Philadelphia NAACP, finally got her a headstone.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It started out with, there was a, a woman um, who was a a neighbor and noticed that like, you know there was there was just no headstone, and so she actually put out. I think it was like she put out a call in the local newspaper asking if anybody would be interested in like like calling for donations or calling for pur- for purchases. And it got big. It got like nationwide. And Janice Joplin and Juanita Green actually got got hold of it and heard about it and then purchased and and set up a headstone for her. But like, man, fuck this shit, right? Like the right. mother of the blues. Has her headstone say "Housekeeper"? And the Empress of the Blues lays in an unmarked grave for thirty-three years. Damn it! I hate
1: everything, except for these women. Yes, I love them. We hate all of the asshole men in their lives. Yes, but these women are amazing. Okay, okay. Now Lee's gonna talk about. Oh boy, my favorite. Oh boy, Gladys. Gladys Bentley. Gladys
0: Bentley, everybody. I want her to be my girlfriend. So you remember how excited we got about Pierre the pansy pirate? I love as Gla- I, I love Gladys Bentley so much. It's Like oh, uh, okay. So she was born in 1907, lived to 1960. She was born to George Bentley and Mar- and Mary Moat in Philadelphia. She was the oldest of four children in a poor family and apparently her mother always wanted her to have been born a boy and her mother refused to touch or nurse her for 6 months after
1: she was born which is t- terrifyingly tragic yeah, um her grandmother like took care of her while she was an infant because her mom didn't want to have anything to do with her because she was so mad with a born a boy
0: oh yeah no, that's just... that that doesn't create lasting damage I'm t- fuck that so she moved to New York City by herself at sixteen, and when she heard the Clam House was looking for a male pianist, she put on a tux and soon became an in-demand singer. She was a butch, short-haired pianist and an alto singer who sported a white tuxedo and top hat and tails. Hashtag iconic. See why I want her to be my girlfriend. <sighs> yeah. Also, Clam House. Yeah, the Clam House. We'll get into the Clam House, too, later. She was known for improvising suggestive, risque lyrics to popular songs. And there's a quote that says, If ever there was a gal who could take a popular ditty and put her own naughty version to it, observed one journalist, La Bentley could do it. She headlined at the Ubangi Club, where she was backed by a chorus of dr- a chorus line of drag queens. And she performed regularly at the Cotton Club, Connie's Inn, and especially, as we mentioned before, Harry Hansberry's Clam House, uh, which was a very popular kind of underground club that specifically catered to gay clientele and had gay folks performing. Hence Uh,
1: the name Clam Clam House.
0: House. (laughs) (laughs) Which is funny. There was like a funny Tumblr post that Gretchen reblogged a while ago that had like runes on clams or something. Yeah, there were like
1: all these runes... Like, there's these clams that occur naturally that have these, like, cool... They look like it, they have runes on them. Mm-hmm. And somewhere along the line, it was... Someone was like, clams are gay. And Lee was like, no. No, Gretchen. Clams, clams have, have always been, been gay. gay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Gretchen was like, clams are gay culture now. I'm like,
0: Gretchen. Clams have always been gay culture. Have you never heard of bake? <laughs> it was no, great.
1: No, no, no wonder I liked Clam chowder so much as a child. <laughs> Is that your root? Is that your your delicious savory root.
0: Sure. Yeah, let's just call it that <laughs> right now. <laughs> so yeah, there's a, there's a great quote from Robert Phillipson who was the who's the um I say was, like he's not, you know, cr- like literally. He's probably like blocks away from us right now. Yeah. Um he lives in the Bay Area apparently. Um but so this he's uh he's the director of that Taint, Nobody, Taint Nobody's Business. Um but there's a quote The Clam House was famous because it had Bentley, reveling in her image as a bulldagger. Because of her, it became a place where black lesbians and gay men would go to hang out. White sightseers from downtown would check out her show as well. She was known as the Brown Bomber of Sophisticated Songs, which is my favorite title, and she was a powerful performer. Quote, when Gladys sings St. James Infirmary, it makes you weep your heart out, one fan wrote of her. And Langston Hughes actually was a large fan of hers. He called her an amazing exhibition of musical energy, and fiction
1: writers of the era actually based characters on her. She had she was known for having this like low, gravelly, Ooh, like yeah. alto, and I just everything about that makes me happy. Yeah. I love that that sound.
0: We're going to we're going to play some
1: some clips for you. Hopefully, y'all yeah, hopefully we'll have some clips for you guys. Yeah.
0: In 1940, she ended up moving to California and she headlined at Mona's 440 Club in San Francisco where their motto was, where girls will be boys, (laughs) uh, which is actually considered to be one of the first explicit lesbian bars in America. And she performed there with other uh, performers of color. In LA, when she was performing down there, she was
1: actually required to get a permit to perform in her iconic tux. Because there was a lot of backlash at the time of women dressed like... With, like, gender presentation. And so it was. It really was a backlash against the very openly flamboyant gay subcultures in Harlem. They were like, oh, well, you have to, you're a woman, you have to wear a dress. And so she had to get a permit to Mm -hmm. perform in her tux. Which, who would keep Gladys Bentley out of her tux?
0: Well, even female impersonators of the time, and even later, like, I was listening to another really, really fantastic queer history podcast, which if you don't listen to it, you should, Making Gay History, where there was someone who was talking about how... They, uh, when they were in drag or, or, like, trans women on the street, they had to wear, like, men's clothing underneath because, because of the cops, like, pulled up on you and you had to, like, basically flash that to be like, hey, I'd still have, you know, this gender presentation that's acceptable underneath these clothes, which is bullshit. Bullshit. She got in trouble... Uh, later on in the 1950s, she ran afoul of the House Un-American Activities Committee, our good friend Hughack. Um, But interestingly enough, not for any sort of political shenanigans uh, like you would expect in the McCarthy in the McCarthy age, but because of her lesbianism and interracial affairs. Boo! And so, due to that atmosphere, she apparently, in an Ebony article, claimed that she converted to heterosexuality through female hormone supplements. And she said this like as a way to save her career. Right. Uh, but later on she pretty much renounced that. Yeah. She claims to have or claims or claimed to have two husbands, but one actually denied the marriage took place. Yep. Hello beards. Um <laughs> Uh, and apparently she was a devout Christian, and she studied for ministry, but she unfortunately died before she could be ordained.
1: Right, it was interesting to notice that with Ma Rainey, too, where you have this later in life, they kind of found religion, Mm -hmm. and at least in Gladys Bentley's case, she used it as a kind of a a cover for, no, wait, guys, I'm not, Mm -hmm. I'm actually straight now. Yeah, Uh, Ma was
0: actually, like, Ma Rainey was was religious her whole life, but, like, after her mother's death and her sister's death, she, you know, kind of went back home, and her brother, I believe, was a large part of of the church, and he was, was, like, a preacher, or I can't remember exactly what it was, and so she specifically kind of joined that congregation later in her
1: life. Right. So, next up we have Ethel Waters and Ethel Williams. Yeah. Ethel Waters was born in 1896 in Chester, Pennsylvania, to Louise Anderson after her mother was raped by a gentleman named John Waters. She was also raped in poverty, running theme here, by her grandmother and never lived in the same place for longer than a year and a half. Ethel Waters married her first husband at 13 years old, but he was abusive, so she left him and worked as a scrub woman and a maid in her later teens. She broke into vaudeville under the name Sweet Mama String Bean and began to appear on stage shows and eventually in films like On With the Show, Cabot in the Sky, Sound in the Fury. She also later in her life starred on a TV series called Beulah, and she ended up in Atlanta working at the same club as Bessie Smith. Where, at Smith's urging, she sang ballads Mm -hmm. and popular songs so as not to compete with Smith singing the blues.
0: Oh, yeah. Bessie Smith was, like, really, really competitive. Like, which was, you know, kind of what she she wanted to say. Like, I don't know, you know, she never, like, publicly acknowledged herself as being influenced by Ma Rainey. She said she was influenced by Cora Fisher, I think. Uh, But, like, that kind of happened with some other women. She was like, don't steal my spotlight. Yeah,
1: yeah. You can't sing the blues. (laughs) I'm singing the blues. You got to sing some other music. My shit. So Ethel Waters moved to Harlem in 1919 and is known for being a blues singer who sang in what's called the vaudeville style and popularized songs like Dinah, Stormy Weather, Heat Wave. Heat Wave, I think, is actually one of the titles of her biographies. Like Bentley, though, she was known for raunchy blues songs like My Handyman with the lines... He shakes my ashes, greases my griddle, churns my butter, strokes my fiddle. My man is such a handy man. (laughs) She actually did act quite a bit and was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress in 1949 for the film Pinky. She was also the first black woman to be nominated for an Emmy for her role on the TV show Route 66. And my favorite tidbit about (laughs) her life is that she toured with Billy Graham. On his crusades, <laughs> which is delightful and fascinating given her as a person. Yeah. So she eventually died in 1977. And we have Ethel Williams in here. Uh, you'll find out later why Ethel Williams is here. But she lived from 1891 to 1961 and she was a dancer in the same company as Ethel Waters. Yep. Um,. And then our our last folks that we wanted to get into here, just,
0: like, a very abbreviated things. Those are kind of, like, our big, big uh, four. And then we have Alberta Hunter, who was born in 1895 and died in 1984. She was... Lived a long lived a time. long time, um, but so she ended. Up, she sang with Louis Armstrong at the beginning of her blues career, and even sang for President Jimmy Carter in the White House towards the end of her career. In 1919, uh, she started a long term relationship with Lottie Tyler, who was the niece of entertainer Burt Williams, and she was known for playing musical beds uh, with Bessie Smith, Billie Holiday, and Ethel Waters. And she, over the course of her life, was very, very kind of closed down with her woman-loving-woman status. She concealed and kind of refused to speak about her lesbianism, even though she... Lived with a woman for 20 years. Yep. Um, and then she ended up getting a nursing degree and working in a hospital for 20 years. And that's kind of what we have on Alberta Hunter. She could probably be a whole other episode later on. Right. Uh,
1: there's some really great stuff Same about it. Same with, like, Billie Holiday. Mm-hmm. There's a whole circle of ladies, even outside the blues singers from this time mm-hmm. period. Yeah. That uh, intersect with each other. And we'll end with uh, Lucille Bogan, also known as Bessie Jackson. She lived from 1897 to 1948. She was born Lucille Anderson in Amory, Mississippi and raised in Birmingham, Alabama. She married Nazareth Bogan in 1914 and had a son, Nazareth Jr., a year later. Eventually divorced Bogan and married a man 22 years younger than herself, James Spencer. All right. There you go. She recorded vaudeville songs in the early 20s and recorded the first song by a black blues singer outside of Chicago and New York in 1923 with the song Pawn Blues, which she recorded in Atlanta. And had her first big success in 1927 with the song "Sweet Petunia." She is also known for her uh, sexually explicit, dirty blues songs about sex and drinking, songs like uh, "Sloppy Drunk Blues" and "Shave 'Em Dry," mm-hmm. which we'll we'll get to. That's yeah. a very and
0: all of those songs too. Like you know, if she was the first person to like start performing those, then they kind of ended up in the whole blues circuit among all of these women. They all have variations on all yeah. of these songs.
1: Yep. Yeah. Uh, as we noticed with Ma Rainey, you have a theme of prostitution and sex work featuring prominently in many of her songs, like the song Groceries on the Shelf, also called Piggly Wiggly, which is named after the super supermarket chain. For those of you who don't know, that's a chain of supermarkets mm-hmm. in the United States called the P- Piggly Wiggly. Uh, lines like, my name is Piggly Wiggly and I swear you can help yourself and you've got to have your green back and I don't take nothing else. She returned to New York in 1933 and started recording under the pseudonym Bessie Jackson and recorded the song B.D. Woman's Blues in 1935. Which leads us
0: to our next little section. Why are all these women in here? Why did we just give you biographies of all of these acclaimed blues singers? Hmm. Why,
1: why do we think they're gay, Gretchen? Well... One of the reasons is that, in general, the sexual and social mores in Harlem were a lot more fluid, and there was more tolerance for homosexuality, as we talked about earlier in the episode. As Steve Watson mentions in his article in the, on the Harlem Renaissance, Harlem churches were strictly anti-gay, but the community, especially the nightlife community, provided a model of tolerance. Richard Bruce Nugent recalled, quote, You don't get up on the rooftop and shout, I fucked my wife last night, so why would you get on the roof and say, I loved Prick? You didn't you just did what you wanted to nobody was in the closet there wasn't any closet mm-hmm. a common pickup line at the time was i'm a one-way man now which way would you like or in a period where syphilis ran rampant sex between men was rationalized by better a little shit than a canker." yeah there you go
0: <laughs> Wee- <Yeah>. Woo! <laughs> And like Gretchen said, specifically Harlem nightlife was where you would see a lot of queer activity and community and was actually one of the first kind of places that you would see a a large swath of people coming together as community around this sexual minority status. So there's a quote that we have here that says, what was occurring was occurring clandestinely or within urban settings that were more or less secret and difficult to penetrate. Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I'm a child. Uh, uh, Like we said, disaster. (laughs) But yeah, it was very much under the cover of night, because they could be prosecuted by same-sex activity. There were some open demonstrations Um, in this time period. You get a lot of talk about, uh, there was this thing called the Pansy Craze, and there were elaborate Harlem drag balls that were attended by sightseers and celebrities. There were drag performers and cabarets as well. But... The main queer activities and community could be found at private parties and in underground speakeasies where there were elements of privacy and safety. A woman who came around to all of these kind of parties at the time, um, and a lot of these these quotes come from Chris Albertson's Bessie Smith book, uh, but this woman, Mabel Hampton, remembers, quote, We used to go to parties every other night. The girls had all the parties. And she says she even... Uh, there was a culture of just kind of joining along. She said, seeing the rest of them do it, what the hell? I'll do it too. It was fascinating. Why, was not, like, why, why not try? Why, why not? not why not try a little lesbianism? Right. Right. That why why like not? A- <laughs> she ended up she ended up actually hosting like a shit ton of her own parties too. <laughs> there were costume balls that were tra- that attracted thousands of attendees, many the men in drag. And the gay clubs and speakeasies were really important, too. And this is kind of where you see an invasion of white queers into black spaces, because mm. these kind of clubs were already like kind of considered, quote, low and couldn't be found in the higher class white neighborhoods. And so thus, white gays and lesbians would travel to places like Harlem, where they where those kind of clubs could exist more freely due to the already present stigma against people of color. Eric Garber, who wrote a really wonderful article that we'll link, notes that, quote, the this identification and feeling of kinship undoubtedly shared by other white lesbians and gay men may have been the first beginnings of a homosexual minority consciousness. So the first mm. kind of time where you have, like, you know, there was a level of exploitation to it, but there was also a level of we are also in this minority consciousness. Yeah, and almost coming- that,
1: like, transcends, like, the racial divide. Of, yeah. Like, there's something about... Our sexual attraction or something about the way that we live our lives that kind of transcends the racial divide and that we can like have a community around that that even you know goes beyond what you know, the segregation of neighborhoods and things like that. Mm-hmm. yeah, but it's it's it's
0: pretty nuanced too, because there was a lot of discussion about how there was some exotic a lot of exoticization yeah. going on. and it, there's there's some really, really great stuff in the books that will will link to if you want to read more about yeah specifically that
1: yeah alayla walker who was the daughter of madam cj walker was dubbed the mahogany Millionaire. i love her she hosted a salon and threw lavish parties at her home with her female lovers celebrities such as i mean you'd get people like carrie grant cole porter even bessie smith were known to attend uh, like- uh tallulah bankhead too Ooh. yeah that uh, tallulah bankhead was one that i wrote about which is fantastic <laughs> <laughs> Mabel Hampton, once again, remembers the bulldikers used to come and bring their women with them, you know? Which brings us to our word of
0: the week, word which, the week. again, we're gonna do two because they're related. So this week's words of the week are rent party and, as you heard us mention before, buffet flat. So a rent party is uh, a party where guests paid admission to help the help the house out with their monthly bills. You know, folks were facing high rent charges from white landowners and there were, you know, some really fucked up rent practices going on. And so people couldn't afford their rent. Big surprise, not anything new. Um, but they, so these were kind of parties that were open to the public and they could last all night long. People would come in, they would pay money and frequently each room would sport a different pleasure one could indulge in. Yes. Um, there were some of the few racially mixed venues of their time, um, and they got really wild. Harlem newspaper reports one that actually went wrong, where a w- one woman cut the throat of another woman because they were both rivals for the affections of a third woman. Um... I was sure Bessie Smith wasn't involved in that. Right. <laughs> Dang. Seems like something um,
1: she would do. Kind of Cut yeah, a bitch. Yes. Cut a bitch.
0: Yeah. Um, the second one is buffet flats. So these are all kind of kind of related. They're both, you know, things that they're both wild parties that people would pay admission into. But buffet flats seemed to be the the big, big one. Um, so they were after hours attain- entertainment in someone's flat where gin was poured from milk pitchers, even like bathtubs full of, of gin. And sometimes there were gambling and sex work on tap as well. Bessie Smith and her niece, Ruby Walker, who we'll talk a little bit more about their their kind of relationship. But they visited one together in Detroit where <laughs> I dropped this quote on, on Gretchen while we were working on our I outline together. I may have And it's great. Uh, So, quote, They had a faggot there that was so great that people used to come there just to watch him make love to another man. He was that great. He'd give a tongue bath and everything. By the time he got to the front of that guy, he was shaking like a leaf. People used to pay good just to go in there and see him do his act. That same house had a woman that used to take a cigarette, light it, and puff it with her pussy. A
1: real educated pussy. At another, a young black entertainer named Joey played the piano and sang, then did a striptease and extinguished a lighted candle by sitting on it until it completely disappeared.
0: How many times am I going to say the word pussy on this podcast? My mom listens to this. <laughs> Hi, mom. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> Hello.
0: Um. But yeah, so buffet, part- buffet flat and rent party. These were the kinds of places where you could see people coming to engage in their various proclivities yep. but the greatest concentration of queer expression could actually be found specifically
1: in blues music and, right and that was because the blues world was the perfect realm for people who were thought of as sexually deviants to inhabit as it thrived far outside the scope of the dominant white American culture in the early 20th century the social and sexual attitudes of Harlem's new immigrants were best reflected in the blues as home and homosexual, homosexuality was clearly a part of this world like blues music at the time blues music was so far under the radar of mainstream america that female blues singers could get away with occasionally expressing unconventional desires and so like this was a place where they could be open and honest about it because most people were ignoring it Mm -hmm. people within their community was aware of it but like mainstream american culture was not paying a whole lot of attention to it so they could kind of get away with saying whatever they wanted to Mm -hmm. say well especially too because like Part of the conceit of blues music is
0: being somewhat story-based. These singers mm-hmm. would take on sort of characters or playing a part in these songs. And so that gave them a semblance of safety and presumed deniability, right? Is she right. singing about herself or the character? It, it allows you to kind of be like, oh, well, I'm just I'm just quoting this blues song. is not about me loving women. It's about this lady that I'm singing from the perspective of. You know, kind of like we were talking about last episode with the whole, we don't know in some of these poems if somebody right. is, is a, it's if it's a man writing this poem and doing it from a female perspective.
1: I don't know. Right, right. There was kind of a plausible deniability that if they really, if push came to shove, they could say, I'm just singing about somebody else who feels this way. Not me. Nope. <laughs> I'm just a queer, uh, I'm a lesbian supporter. <laughs> as a, as a lesbian.
0: supporter Supporter. anyway we have to have at least one fandom reference in every podcast (laughs) don't we Um, right so so let's let's uh that's kind of our social context of you know what was going on in terms of the queer world do you do you want to talk a little bit
1: about uh about specifically ma Ma? yeah ma rainy okay so in 1925 she was arrested at an orgy that she was having with multiple women in her chorus Woo. she so here's a direct quote she and a group of young ladies had been drinking and were making so much noise that a neighbor summoned the police. Unfortunately for Ma and her girls, the law arrived just as the party got intimate. There was pandemonium as everyone madly scrambled for their, her clothes and ran out the back door. Ma, clutching someone else's dress, was the last to exit, but a nasty fall down a staircase foiled her escape. Unquote. So she was thrown in jail and Bessie Smith had to bail her out the next morning. Yeah. So big, big gay orgy. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, and then later on in her career, she started kind of including some more queer content in her in her music, kind of reflecting on and, and responding to these rumors of lesbianism after this big arrest in
1: 1925. So do, do you want to yeah. talk a little bit about Prove It On Me Blues? Prove It On Me Blues. Oh, man. A quote powerful statement of lesbian defiance and self-worth in response to the rumors after her arrest here's here are some some choice lines went out last night with a crowd of my friends. They must have been women cause I don't like no man. It's true I wear a collar and tie. Talk to the gals just like any old man. don't you Don't you say I do it? Ain't nobody caught me. You sure got to prove it on me. She's daring the world to find evidence and admitting just, just enough. enough. But never coming, never actually saying it, but also kind of, yes, she's. Saying it, mm-hmm. uh, the advertisement for the release of the song showed the woman, the blues woman, sporting a man's hat, jacket, and tie, and while a policeman looked on, obviously attempting to seduce two women on a street corner. Yeah,
0: we're gonna put that up on the website. Oh, it's pretty it, great. It's, it's yeah, great. She it's, also she also had a couple of other songs that, if not dealing directly with like lesbianism, specifically talked about the the prevalence of kind of like homosexuality in in the community. And so there's there's one song called Sissy Blues where she talks about her man being stolen by a sissy um so she you know a sissy named Kate apparently or she says you know i dreamed last night i was far from harm woke up and found my man in a sissy's arms and talks about how much better at loving her man this sissy named Kate is oh. and that sissy had a fantastic jelly roll and a whole <sighs> bunch of other stuff so What's there's a jelly roll oh boy <laughs> <laughs> uh we don't have time to get into that but i mean a lot of you know there was a lot of euphemisms in all of these songs but philipson again the the documentarian says that he doesn't want to overplay the significance of the three songs that ma rainey wrote and recorded that had some references to the queer world That these were like a handful out of hundreds and hundreds of blues songs that were being recorded and the fact that there were any was pretty remarkable which i thought was really uh important yep. to
1: note yeah now, Bessie. Bessie Smith, who is known for her quote, violent temper, a taste for alcohol, and a prodigious appetite for women, unquote. Can you see why we want her to get together with Ann Bonnie? Was what was the quote from Anne Bonnie that was like it was like, like, a like boisterous like a boisterous and violent temper, or right? Oh my god.
0: They were uh,
1: made for each other.
0: Yeah. So she had a long and passionate affair with Lillian Simpson, who was a chorus girl of hers um in 1926. And they, they shared a berth on the, on the show's train. And then when Simpson, one evening, when Simpson got, Reggie is like shaking her I hands. This. She's this so excited about this. Um, when Simpson got upset that Smith had kissed her in public, Smith replied, the hell with you, bitch. I got 12 women on this show and I can have one every night if I want it.
1: Isn't she great?
0: Oh my God. Uh, That actually sent Lillian into, like, a crazy depressive spiral. And she actually, like, had a, like, almost suicide attempt. And then Bessie burst into, like, kicked down the door and rescued her from herself. And from that moment on, like, Lillian never said a word about, like, being embarrassed by anything.
1: Oh my gosh. Yeah.
0: Wow. Bessie also had, like, a really complex relationship with her husband Jack's niece, Ruby Walker, who was one of, like, her most crucial... And, and kind of most complex relationships in her life. It, it, at the same time, was like mentor, friend, but also confidant. Ruby basically acted as the keeper of her lesbian secrets and traveled with her from 23 until 29, not ages, but 1923, 1929, when Jack and Bessie broke up. And they would often run away from Jack together. Um, Lillian was actually a friend of Ruby's, and Lillian even told Ruby she, quote, didn't know what she was missing, and that she, try it with L- Boo Lee, who was another chorus girl. Um, and then Bessie was like, uh-uh, no, she warned Ruby that she'd send her home if she fooled around with any of the other girls. Possessive much? A little bit. A little bit? But it's like, they, they probably were not having sex, but she didn't want Ruby to have sex with anybody, sex with anybody else. else. Yeah. Um, she would often buy, I thought this was really cool, she would often buy red gifts for, like, the significant women in her life, which was actually a callback to Jack buying her a red dress on one of their first dates. So, like, you see a lot of stories of, like, women in, like, red pajamas and red dresses
1: and stuff like that that she had, like, bought them. I don't, you guys can't see us right now, but we both happen to be wearing oh, articles shit. of clothing that have red on them. Oh, yeah.
0: it's mm, good. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we didn't plan uh, that. We just yeah. are.
0: Uh, um, And she, you know, like we said before, was a frequent attendee at rent parties and buffet flats. Ruby Walker. So a lot of the stuff that we actually know about Bessie and her queer proclivities actually come from the Chris Albertson book where he had interviewed Ruby Walker. So all of these are, like, from her niece, who was there with, <laughs> with all of everybody together. Yeah. Um, so she says on that same buffet flat in Detroit that we talked about earlier... It was nothing but faggots and bulldikers, a real open house. Everything went on in that house. Tongue baths, you name it. They called them buffet flats because buffet means everything. Everything that was in the life. Bessie was well known in that place.
1: Well known. Well Biblically. known. Biblically. One night, Bessie and Ruby went to a party. Bessie with five girls in her posse. And they all ended up in Bessie's room. Ruby passed out early in the night and woke up later to Jack surprising everyone and hell breaking loose after he caught Bessie in bed with a girl named Marie and threatened to kill her. Yeah, so Bessie got all of them to gather their things and ran out and head for the train depot together, no one taking the time to dress. Uh, And if you want the full story of that, you can can read Albertson's book.
0: Yeah, yeah, Ruby actually talks about how, like, that's how she lost her, like, her good fur coat. She's like, that's how I lost my only good fur coat. (laughs) Bessie took us out of, took us out of, uh... Like I can't remember where it was, but like maybe it was maybe it was Detroit. I don't know. But she's like, we we left Detroit. Oh, she took us out of Detroit almost naked. <laughs> like nobody had time. They just went whoosh whoosh whoosh. It was crazy. But yeah, she also has some some great uh references in her lyrics. So lyrics to the boy in the boat. When you see two women walking hand in hand, just look them over and try to understand. They'll go to those parties, have the lights down low. Only those parties where women can go.
1: Then there's the song Empty Bed Blues. I want a deep-sea diving woman that got a stroke that can't go wrong. Yeah, touch that bottom, gal. Hold it all night long.
0: Yeah, she would frequently perform that one. and It was usually, like, addressed to a male love interest, but on more than one occasion, she apparently changed the lyrics to that. Mm. Which is great. Um, and then there's the lyrics of Foolish Man Blues. There's two things got me puzzled. There's two things I can't stand. A mannish-acting woman and a skipping, twisting woman acting man. There you go. Uh, right? Yeah.
1: So, uh, so Ma and Bessie. Yeah. There's they, a... I think there are rumors. There are rumors yeah. that they were involved.
0: Yeah. There's a speculation that they were romantically involved. Um, one of Ma Rainey's guitarists, uh, for her Jackson, Mississippi tent show, Sam Chapman, is quoted as saying. Quote, I believe she was courting Bessie the way they'd talk. I believe there was something ro- going on wrong. Bessie said, me and Ma Rainey had plenty of big times together. If Bessie be round, she'd, be getting, she'd get to talking to another man. She, Ma, would run up. She didn't want no man to talk with her. So, mm. I don't know. There's, that's like all you can find kind of about them being, I mean, if anything, right, Bessie must have like looked up in some way to Ma. Right. Who knows if they had something more going
1: on, but enough people were talking about it. Yeah, yeah. And that brings us to back to Gladys. Oh, Gladys Bentley. <sighs> oh,
0: Gladys.
1: Her queerness was present as a child. She was mocked for her non-traditional presentation in the way that she dressed, even when she was younger. And her parents actually took her to a doctor to try and cure her of a crush that she had on a female teacher. <clears throat> yep. Uh, she is, uh, we consider her the queen of classy butch and proudly wore the label of bulldagger. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's part of, it was part of her performance was, was the tux and the top hat mm-hmm. and flirting, the flirting, yeah! shame,
0: flirting shamelessly
1: with women in the audience. Yeah. Well, can you imagine that in the twenties? Oh 20s? my gosh. Huh. She actually even had a, I mean, not legal, but she actually had a marriage ceremony with one of her female lovers. Love it. And Bentley actually said to Ebony magazine in that interview we mentioned earlier, from the time I can remember anything, I never wanted a man to touch me. Soon I began to feel more comfortable in boys' clothes than in dresses, and we mentioned earlier that she had kind of said that she was, you know, cured and had become a heterosexual because of her female hormone treatments. But, but, however, in 1957 she was interviewed, and the interviewer asked her about a photo that she had on her dresser of a man and a woman, and she pointed to the the male and said, "That's my husband," and then pointed to the other one and said, "And that's my wife." wife. good just like nonchalantly like oh yeah that's my husband that's my and wife that's my wife
0: goals yes god all of these people just seem to have been so deliciously poly that yes! we've talked about right!
1: it on, this co- on this podcast so far oh my goodness oh, that's great oh, oh and that brings us back to the ethels oh the ethels we didn't tell you much about ethel williams um before because there actually really isn't a whole lot known about ethel williams yeah. other than her relationship with ethel waters she had red hair apparently that's, yeah. like, what I found, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't even find that. Yeah. So, Ethel Waters was involved with the blues singer Alberta Hunter that mm-hmm. we mentioned earlier and is rumored to have had an affair with the British novelist of lesbian stories Radcliffe Hall, whom Waters actually mentions in one of her autobiographies. And Waters and Williams had a uh, fairly public affair with each other, complete with flirting from stage, lovers' spats. They actually earned the nickname The Two Ethels. Mm-hmm and they even moved in together and lived as, together as lovers which was considered just reputable and probably pretty unprecedented at the time for them to be openly living with each other and um Waters also kind of like Alberta Hunter managed to keep that fact out of all of the biographies written about her for the 20th century it's mm-hmm. actually the the biography that was written i believe in 2004 um it's either 2004 or 2007 but it's one of that was the first biography to actually mention that they lived together mm-hmm. Yeah, um, she, she she kept things locked down.
0: Yep. It was also part of the fact that like she really kind of ended up in like high society, sophisticated kind of yep. uh spaces and kind of and she's one of the the women in this kind of circle of women that moved moved further into the swing and established jazz age too so you she started having a lot more interaction with like white culture and higher society right culture right because she was the one
1: who who was nominated and won awards for like her film and her television acting so she was moving kind of into the more of like the elite hollywood circles Mm -hmm. than than some of the other women were yeah can't be a queer mo in one of those
0: (laughs) 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 <laughs> except except maybe except maybe hmm. Hmm.
1: Hmm. we might talk about yeah, that soon maybe
0: last we have uh our friend lucille bogan um so she's been a little harder to track down information on even though she was like one of the first people that we discovered but we really wanted to um have you listen to or hear some lyrics from bd woman's blues so here's some here's some lyrics for that Coming a time, BD women, they ain't gonna need no men. They got a head like a sweet angel and they just walk like a natural man. And they can lay their jive just like a natural man. So there's, you know, discussion about whether she could just be writing about BD women rather than being one herself. It's kind of that that conceit of the blues nature that we were talking about earlier. But
1: goddamn are her lyrics raunchy oh, man. in a lot of them
0: so um. <laughs>
1: we looked up shave him dry and uh this isn't the full song we can post the full song in our show notes but uh here here's some nice choice lyrics from lucille bogan i got nipples on my titties big as the end of my thumb i got something between my legs that'll make a dead man come baby won't you shave him dry want you to grind me baby grind me until i cry i fucked all night and the night before baby and i feel like i want to fuck some more Oh, grind me, honey, shave me dry. Sorry, mom. <laughs> Yay. <Woo! laughs> oh, and it gets—I
0: mean, it gets the, whole so song, the whole song. The whole song is like that. Yeah.
1: Uh. Yep.
0: Um. So yeah. So one one kind of last thing we wanted to talk about with all of these women is that there was a very specific kind of distinction in a lot of things that we were reading about. A distinction between the women who took female lovers and then the kind of out-butch lesbians or beady women or bull daggers. Um, the difference between, like, Gladys Bentley was really kind of the only one who was really out and about in her yep. identity. A lot of these other women were either what we would kind of consider nowadays bisexual or were in marriages to kind of cover things up. But Gladys Bentley was really the one who was like, eh fuck it. Yep. This is great. Um, there's, a a great quote from Josephine Baker's friend, Maud Russell, who, Josephine Baker's a little out of this kind of time period, she was more in the swing age, but, in the swing era, but, um, she had numerous, numerous affairs with lots of other women, including Frida Kahlo, um, uh, but this, this woman, Maud Russell, actually says a, a really interesting quote, um, where she says, We had girl friendships, the famous lady lovers, but lesbians weren't well accepted in show business. They were called bull dikers. I guess we were bisexual is what you'd call it today. Mm. So I thought that was really cool. Yeah. Yeah. So that that uh that brings us kind of to our wrapping up here after our, our good hour yeah. of
1: good gay content. Yes. Um so yes. Do we have any uh, pop culture tie-ins for this time? We didn't have any last time.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's because we keep running out of time. Because we
1: <laughs> right, so many other things. We to say. write thirty
0: thirty page outlines. Because you well, got
1: you got a couple of Ravenclaws here. We got copious notes. Oh yeah.
0: Um. But so, uh, a fun thing that we'll put on the on the website a link to is there's a there's a really great HBO film. Uh, from 2015 called Bessie. And it was based on Bessie's biography by Chris Albertson, which we referenced a lot of times. But I think this is super cool and we should do a movie watch of it because Queen Latifah plays Bessie Smith and Monique plays Ma Rainey. Mm. So we're gonna watch that. Yeah, that sounds amazing. God damn. Um, But kind of main takeaways, conclusions, final thoughts as we wrap up here. I think it's just this really amazing emphasis of these women being trailblazers in creating a kind of new black feminism. And the fact that I didn't know that there was any sort of queer subculture in the Harlem Renaissance, and specifically in, like, just, like, black queer communities, right? There's that, like, that whole bullshit statement about how there's this, like, more prevalence of homophobia in African-American communities, which is... You know, I mean, I cannot speak to that community, but clearly that wasn't right. the case in this in this blues community.
1: Right. Which was g- kind
0: of everywhere, which right. was amazing.
1: Right. What's really cool about that is kind of like last week where we were talking about how because of the way the government has cracked down in China, that they have kind of lost their connection. A lot of, like, modern gay people in China have lost their connection to this tradition of homosexuality. And here we have something similar where I think because so often people talk about how, you know, homophobia is so much more prevalent among black communities, that people have lost this, like, iconic movement of, you know, of queer people in the Harlem Renaissance and just what, I mean, it's another just, like, tragic loss, like, Mm -hmm. both, I think, for our community specifically, but I just think for history in general that, like, this is one of the feels like in the united states one of the first places where it was really just people like that one quote about there were no closets people just did what you wanted to mm-hmm. do you didn't shout it from the rooftops but like at you least were just, in this insular community in this insular community people were just allowed to kind of exist for who they were and it's just so beautiful to like see another story like that where Hmm. there's like there's no stigma from within the community there's no sense of fear you don't read these and 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 get the sense that these are people who are like terrified of their experience or who they were like you read gladys bentley or like (laughs) bessie smith and she's like shouting down Klansmen. right oh god hero yes right just how fearless like these women were i think especially like as queer women of color the fearlessness of these women is just super like beautiful and inspiring and it just yeah Yeah. awesome so gretchen yep how gay were they like we're gonna need to invent a new goddamn scale for the levels of gay (laughs) of these women we
0: didn't look guys i'm gonna be real with you We didn't even put numbers anywhere. We didn't even, like, rank them out individually. No. I just wrote in all caps on our outline, like, my notes literally just say, all of them are off the charts, good fucking lord. How did I not know about this? Right?
1: Because there's just, like, it's (laughs) arrested at a gay orgy. Like, goals. (laughs) Right? Seriously. Hashtag goals. Uh, (laughs) And, uh, and I guess, um, with that, that's Hashtag it. goals. Hashtag
0: goals. That, that's that's it. That's today's episode. Um, you can find us online individually. Gretchen, where can they find? Where can our lovely listeners, of which there are people of in forty-four countries, what the hell, what? y'all? That's insane. You uh, guys are amazing. That's so cool. Um, so Gretchen, where where can lovely folks find you on the in uh, locate you upon the internets?
1: Well, when I am not gushing about gloriously gay women. Um, I am writing nerdy media analysis and fangirling over Star Wars. Right now my life is Star Wars. <laughs> um, and other shows like Steven Universe, own Earp, and working on a queer science fiction novel. But uh, yeah, you can find me at thefandamentals.com or my personal website, gnllis.com. Or you can find me on Tumblr and Twitter as Writer, all one word. What about you, Lee? Um, so,
0: when I'm not nerding out about old-timey queer folks, I'm usually talking about comics and queer TV over at A Paradox In Flux on Twitter, and I I guess now wandering the streets trying to find a rent party. Damn. Maybe we
1: should host one. Oh, boy. Um, I, is... Look, I need my security deposit back, okay? <laughs> <laughs> True. It's the Bay Area. It's expensive, man. Oh, boy. Yeah. Um, History is Gay Podcast can be found on Tumblr at History is Gay Podcast, Twitter at History is Gay Pod, and you can always drop us a line with questions, suggestions, or just to say hi at History is Gay Podcast at gmail.com. We've already gotten several lovely, wonderful emails from you guys. Yeah, keep them coming. We're awesome. Oh, we also had fan art! Yes! Oh my god, okay. One of our um, listeners made, like, listened to our first podcast about pirates and said that they were inspired to... Draw photos of our, our queer foursome.
0: Yeah, yeah. Go to our Tumblr. We reblogged it. You can check out their, pod, or their Tumblr. I believe it's Ender Kitty. Yes. Um, we reblogged it, but they're super cool and we love it. And we're so touched that our podcast inspired you to art. Keep doing it. Draw fan art. Also, if anybody wants to draw any shippy fan art of all of these women being destructive and gay together, hit me up. Yeah. Um, N- neither one of us draw. So if yeah, someone else yeah. can fill that void. Oh, man that'd be Um, great so yeah if you're enjoying the show remember to rate review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts it helps more people find the show and we can expand this awesome community where
1: people are like making fine art which is so cool I know Ah, (laughs) oh my gosh you guys are great so that's it for History is Gay until next time stay queer and stay curious
0: (laughs) Whoa, <laughs> whoa,